Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm Lydia Akobole, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Hena Shah, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, it's Amar, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nikhwaz Khan and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast, or Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. Hi, this is Kal Singh Dinsa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Good evening, friends. I'm Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Bereavement Room Podcast. Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Bereavement Room Podcast. I hope you're having a great week. I'm pleased to say that today's guest is grief coach and mindset coach Sue Guerrieri. Sue has joined me today to talk about her daughter, Geneva, who died by suicide in 2018. This episode is in memory of Geneva Guerrieri. As always, thank you for listening. I'm thrilled to have Sue Guerrieri on our show today. Hello, Sue. How are you doing? Hi, thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on your amazing show. I feel really honoured. Thank you. Okay, so um, I'm from South London. I'm of Nigerian descent, but I was born and raised in Greenwich. And um, I have a coaching business, so I'm a mindset. And recently, because of what I'd gone through in losing my daughter, become a grief coach. And so the majority of what I do is really work with individuals to get them from a fixed negative growth mindset, fixed negative mindset into a positive growth mindset and really get them to work through their fears, help them leave their comfort zone, challenge the reasons as to why they feel stuck. And I use my experiences and my training as a coach to really work with uh, individuals. So yeah, that's what I do. Lovely. How long have you been doing that for? It's brilliant. I've I've been a professional coach since 2016. So yeah, yeah. And it's just one of the most rewarding um, things to do because when I'm sat down with a client, I see how I was before I embarked on the personal growth journey that I've been on and reflecting on all of my training. And it's really rewarding seeing that little glimmer of light after sessions working with a client and help them see their confidence really begin to grow and you know, getting them to challenge their emotions break down bad habits, all of their self-limiting beliefs. So yeah, it's just it's just brilliant. Oh, it, Love sounds, it. it 
sounds very empowering and uh, very inspirational. We definitely need more life coaches and mindset coaches, grief coach um, out there to kind of, you know, help us through the challenging times mm. or even if we're not going through a challenging time but we need a bit of boost. Mm. Um, it's it's quite a nice um, added extra to have in our careers or whatever might be going on in our lives to help us move forward. Absolutely. And I think I think what's happened over the last few years, is particularly what I've noticed in the um, coaching industry, there are lots of coaches and oftentimes people tend to turn their nose up at the idea of having a coach in your life because they never fully engage in the process. So you can't help someone change a habit that they have built up throughout their lives in one session. And a lot of people don't fully engage in the process, really getting to work through and break down those habits little by little. And what oftentimes a lot of people want instant results and it doesn't work like that. You know, if um, I always like to give the example of weight loss because that's the most um, obvious example to give. So if it takes, say, like six to eight months for you to gain weight, why would you then assume that you can now lose that weight by either drinking a tea or <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> you know drinking a tea or wrapping... Um, a waist trainer round your waist to get, you know, your six, your six abs. You're not going to get six packs just doing that in one day. It is a learned process. It is a journey. And oftentimes, because our brains are fashioned in such a way, we resist change so much. And that's the reason why people find it incredibly difficult to change areas of their lives because your brain instantly is fighting against that change. And so, and so once you're able to break down those, break down that resistance and leave your comfort zone and then start to implement slowly, slowly little changes, you know, just like little tiny little things. So for mm. example, if you're the sort of person that cannot, does not like waking up early in the morning, you have to ask yourself, why is that? Is it because I'm going to bed incredibly late? Is it because I'm spending too much time either watching um, television, I'm on my mobile phone? If mm. I were to go to bed, say, give myself an hour. So I'm gonna go to bed an hour and then wake up. You automatically start to see that actually I've had an extra hour of sleep I've gone to bed less stressful, so maybe, so maybe I want to incorporate something else into my uh, nighttime routine, which is wind down, perhaps do a bit of meditation, or just switch the television off and just be at peace with myself. Little changes like that slowly start to build the foundations of your mindset and the foundations of you really starting to change areas of your life that you're so desperately trying to change. Mm. Yeah. I think often we want quick fixes in life, you know. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> the <it's>, tea. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. There is no, there is nothing in life that is instant success. And that's what social media and the internet has caused with mm. our generation. And I'll tap into that as we as we discuss further about Geneva's generation, is that 
we look at other people and just and all we're seeing is the highlight reels and we're saying oh you know success this that overnight success there's no such thing as an even if you win the lottery mm. the chances are you would have you would have already dug deep into your coffers to buy several tickets yes. before <laughs> before you got to that one ticket do you know what I mean that has now given you your reward yeah as it were so there is no, no one no one wakes up one day and then ha ha here I am today no. you know it's impossible life don't work that way no it doesn't Right. Well, then that kind of brings us on to before we take a look back on, you know, your daughter, you're here to talk about your daughter, Geneva, who died by suicide in October 2018. Before we look back on that day, you know, when you went to visit her in halls of residence, talk to us about who Geneva was, what her interests were, where she was in her life and just who Geneva was generally as a person. So my little baby, my little June bug. So that's what I used to. That was her nickname, June bug. And I very and I didn't always call her Geneva. I was always I always called her June bug. And if I refer to her by her full government name, it's usually because I need something doing or she's done something wrong. She was just a really lovely, geeky, funny, sarcastic young girl. And she was she was into Marvels. Marvel movies into Game of Thrones and and actually she got into the world of superheroes and comic books because of me because I grew up watching these cartoons and so when they then made them into live action movies right away I got her involved in that and she loved gaming so when I when I look back at her she really wasn't your average teenage girl and young adult. And what I mean by that is that a lot of girls, a lot of girls her age are either really into social media, makeup, and taking selfies and you know, wanting to um, get into be YouTubers and all of that. But Geneva wasn't. She was really geeky, really funny, extremely academic. Uh, I don't even know how I was even able to produce a child (laughs) that was so studious in her studies, really conscientious about her work, a ferocious reader. She, you know, she, she was just a really, really lovely, lovely and a quiet child. I think I really have to emphasize that. And I think her quiet nature, because I think I need to um, go back a little bit and give a little synopsis as to myself and Geneva and our lives, how it was when we lost her and found her and where it was before. So I was actually a single mum when I had Geneva and I was 20, I was 21 when I had her and lived in just a horrible, proper you, you know, you're the typical council estates. Mm. You know? So I was on benefits, I was in debt, and I did cleaning jobs because my whole mindset, and this, and this is really the foundations of my family and how I was raised, was that you've just got to work. You've just got to work hard and you've got to go to school. And so when I found myself pregnant with Geneva, 
automatically I just thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to get into university now? How am I going to complete my A-levels? And it was that driving force that really got me to the stage where here I am, I'm a single mum, I've got this little human that is relying desperately on me, what am I going to do? My pride did not want to claim benefits, but I knew I had to because there was no other means of income. And I hated it. Like, it really, really affected me. I felt like I was being a scrounger, as it were. I just, I couldn't, I really, I didn't like it. And I went on benefits, but at the same time, I then did cleaning jobs also, just to get that extra income and try and get us out of this council estate. So our first council estate was in um, Vauxhall. We lived in Vauxhall, second floor. It was just awful, just, it was disgusting. And I remember when she was young enough to understand what was going on, I just used to always say to her that this is not our lives. We are simply passing through and I will I will do anything and everything to get us out of this council flat, move from this area into another area. And it really was the support of my family that would look after Geneva so that I was able to finish off my A-levels. And that in itself was incredibly stressful. Um, finish off my A-levels get into university, again, even that was stressful yeah. in itself. And whilst I'm doing all of this, I am slowly, slowly saying to myself that everything I'm going through is just temporary. And so I think because I wasn't, I was present physically, but emotionally, I wasn't present for her because I was just so focused on trying to build a better life for us. And when I look back now on her personality, she was just so used to being by herself. She loved her, she loved her own company and she would often just spend time either watching something related to a comic, a comic book hero, um, gaming, she used to love gaming with her, with her cousins. Yeah. And she was just a really shy child and her shyness, she 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 was shy throughout her secondary school. So she didn't have a lot of friends. And it used to always bother me because I could see her humour and how funny she was at home and how she was around her cousins. But I never saw that with when she was in school. So none of her friends would ever come over or anything like that. And I used to think it was because oh, is she ashamed of me or is she embarrassed about me? But when, but as she was great, as she, as she got into university, she just said that she just particularly didn't like her, her classmates. The, the girls in her classmates, uh, in her class were particularly bitchy and she never, she, she didn't have anything in common with them because they were doing things and their interests were completely different to what Geneva found interesting. So she did spend a lot of her, her teen years really just being by herself. She had a couple of friends that shared the same sort of interests, but she didn't have like a massive friendship group like most, I mean, unlike her sister, for example, who is the complete opposite 
of Geneva. She is literally me, a complete social butterfly. But Geneva was similar to me in my character in that very focused, dark sense of humour, hardworking, but unable to really express her emotions mm-hmm. the way... And I think, and I think that's only because of how, because of her early years, because as I said, though I was present, I wasn't present emotionally because my whole mind, my whole mindset was, you know, I'm working hard. I'm a single mom. I'm putting food on the table and yeah, I haven't got time to do the whole cuddling. Da, 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 da. You can see what I'm doing and you know that I love you, but yeah, but the aspect of me being that really maternal, giving cuddles and kisses. Now that just wasn't me because at that time I was young and my whole focus was getting off benefits, getting out of this council estate, getting a job, graduating and then pursuing my career. And I know that affected her because she said that later on when when we then found out that, oh, okay, she's now tried to take her own life, so yeah. Neva sounded so wonderful, just so fun loving. She loved life and she had her own unique interests in mm. life that were different to maybe what you would see on social media and the social media generation, I guess you could say. 100%, yeah. She just was not like your and I like and I say your average um average teenager or young adult because that's all I'm seeing. And even if I try to compare her to her cousins, whilst her cousins are all they're all similar like her, but they all have but they're all a lot more confident in themselves. And Geneva really wasn't that confident early on. Her confidence grew when she left home and went to university but overall I like the fact that she was different and I used to always say to her that different is good you don't want to be the same as anyone else that your unique gift that is within you that's that's what's going to make room for you so you should never feel like I need to fit I need to fit in or you know I don't um, I'm not doing this and over time she accepted that. Actually, she never, to be honest with you, she never really tried to change. Like, I mean, oftentimes I would say, gosh, Geneva, you're not, you know, you're not going to, I don't know, put your hair up or something. Is that, is that, is that what you're going to wear? And she'd be like, yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So, you know, I found myself trying to make her a little bit, you know, add a little bit of sprinkle, you know, be like me a little bit and be, and put yourself together in terms of put a really nice outfit on and, make sure your shoes and everything. But that just wasn't her. And when she embraced it, she embraced it really well. She, you know, that that was Geneva. And mm. when she finished her A-levels, that was just, again, amazing. Gained admission to her first choice university. Again, that was amazing. I mean, I was a little bit worried because I just, because in my mind I was thinking, she's not really worldly in the sense that she doesn't really know how to pay bills. She's never done any kind of shopping. So, you know, in that area, I've probably let her down. I've not given her that much independence where she is, where I feel confident that she's going to be able to take care of herself. But I needn't have worried because she did. So even though I thought that I wasn't actually helping her she was actually paying attention to how I run the house 
and how I how I manage money and other things because she was able to go to university, no worries whatsoever. I mean, mm. at least she learned how to cook, you know. So <laughs> that was just That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, because I've always said it, none of my children are going to be eating beans on toast again. Mm. Mm. You, you know, they can cook. So at least, so yeah. she was cooking for her housemates. And yeah, yeah. that, so that was, so that was brilliant. Okay. So all of, yeah, so all of my worries that, oh my gosh, how's she going to do this? How's she going to do that? Needn't have worried because whilst I thought she weren't paying attention or I wasn't being direct and showing her how to manage money and do all of these, you know, day-to-day life skills, she was already picking them up anyway from me. So I I had no worries. And, Mm. you know, and that's why initially, I mean, I don't beat myself up about this anymore, but in the beginning, that's why it was so hard for me to get my head around because I was like, why would she do? And my 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 reaction was, why would she leave me? Why would she do such a thing? Like, look at her life. Like, really, mm. really. And that's and that's how and that's how my emotions were initially. It was like, really, Geneva, really, mm. <laughs> like that. So before we get into that, I mean, Geneva sounded like she was her very much her authentic self. Absolutely. Mm, and she went you know she successfully completed her A-levels and went to her first choice university which was what did she study and where did she go? She went to Bournemouth University and she studied media communications. Okay. Now I'm sorry because um, I'm repeating it in my head because she used to always correct me because I could never remember <laughs> could never remember the call so yeah media yeah. communications yeah. Yeah and so Geneva went off to university. So this is now where we kind of come to the part of recalling the day you visited her. Mm. Um, and I believe that she'd completed her time at Bournemouth University and then went on to study her master's. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And so she had graduated with first class honours. In wow. addition, she had completed a professional certification from the Chartered Institute of of Marketing, CIM. So she did that course alongside her degree and she just absolutely smashed it. And at that time, when she rang and said, mummy, because that's how she used to call me, she'd say, mummy, guess who's got a first class? And I was like, come on, getting levels, super, super excited. It was just brilliant, you know. And then then this is where things just went south, like literally rapidly south. And so she's come home and she's told myself and her dad, her stepdad, that, you know, she wants to go and do her master's. And she had already started to apply. And so she had offers from UCL, I believe, LSE and Imperial College. Wow. And top, they're the top yeah, universities. Yeah, yeah. This, and so this is why this whole thing just beggars belief. I don't get it. Do you know what I mean? I really literally don't get it. And so she chose Imperial because one of her happy places and for all of us really is Italy because my husband's um, Italian and we have a villa 
in Italy. So a lot of her childhood, from the age of seven, that's when we became a family. So from the age of seven, she's always known Italy. And so Imperial College, she was at the business, she had gained admission at the business school and they have a um, program where you get to spend, I believe it's a few months or so in Italy, in Milan. And so the family in Italy were like, that's great. She can, you know, we've got family um, in Milan. So she, she'll, she'll have a place to stay. So that was why she chose Imperial College. But I did not want her to do her master's because I felt that she had already spent three to four years studying already for her degree and mm. she's done amazingly and now you've got lots of job opportunities because she worked her her placement that she had her one-year placement was at HBO headquarters oh, wow. in yeah and she would she had the privilege and absolute blessing of being um, going to red carpet events for Game of Thrones oh. the the amount of, you know, one-off pieces that she got from the Game of Thrones um, production team was just amazing. She had, when the um, NBA came into town to play their little tour matches. I remember that. I was there, yeah. actually, in Regent Street. Yeah. Yeah. Geneva was there front oh, row. And I was like, you know, look at my child living her best life yeah. and I was just incredibly proud of her she was the treasurer for I believe it was the oh gosh I think it was um whether I think it was students union because because she, the thing is she was so active in you in the university life that I literally could not keep up and she wasn't like a little bit active you know dip her toes in no she went all in and so she was a treasurer for, I can't remember whether it was Students' Union or for the media department, but she was instrumental in that faculty and everybody on campus knew who Geneva was. And so my whole, my whole point of view was that you've spent all of this time studying, give yourself a break, take up the job offers, and if you feel as you're working that actually I want to further my education because it's actually going to advance me further in my career and having a master's will do that for me then you know what baby I will back you two thousand percent but at the minute I just feel take a break from studying don't do a master's yet wait a little bit because you might actually find that you're so good at what you're doing that you don't even need the masters or or the company that you work for may decide that you are such an asset to the firm that they are actually going to fund further education for you because my whole point was we have we have supported you financially through your degree what we're not going to do is support you in your masters because i don't that's not i'm not obligated to do that i said that my husband said no he was like no if that's what she wants to do we're not forcing her we're not applying any pressure this is what she wants to do let her just do it and I was really vocal about me about her not doing it but in the end 
because my husband said, look, she wants to do it, let her do it. And Geneva was, she really wanted to do it. I, saw, I was sort of like reluctant. Okay, then fine. If that's what you want to do, fine. And so we went ahead and paid for her. And for me, I sincerely believe that the stress, because what, because what I, how I look at look how I look at every stage of education, it's always a leap in learning. It's always a leap in learning. And so what you learn what you learn um, when you're doing your degree is completely different and more intensive once you jump to do your P your masters and then do your PhD and all, and all of the re the other thing. It's a massive learning commitment. And I I think that she probably underestimated the amount of work that is involved in doing your masters because once she gained admission into Imperial, she just became really stressed and really withdrawn and not like and not not like her normal not like her normal self. So she as I said, she she was always a quiet child. But now she's super, super, super quiet. And at the beginning, she was super excited. She'd tell me, um, I'll say, tell me, she'll tell us that, oh, you know, we've got a couple, a couple of Italians, you know, I'm connecting with them. And she got, she was, she made friends with a couple of like minded girlfriends. So her friendship group expanded, it expanded from university and also expanded. Um, at Imperial because she was only there for about two and a half weeks probably three weeks or so so she weren't there that long but I could see her I could see her post on Facebook because by this time she's not she's not living at home anymore she's um she's in the halls of residence mm -hmm. but I but you know my, this is how I feel I I felt like she didn't need to do her master's she chose to do her master's and then I don't know how her emotions or how her mental health declined so rapidly where she just fell up with this no more will I put and therefore yeah I'm just mm. gonna I'm just gonna end it now she had continuous years of studying and studying and then she really wanted to do her master's mm. and it's tough I think that's a lot for young people um a lot of studying you know I've spoken to some of the other guests on the podcast where they've continuously studied and they've talked about poor mental health within universities and mm. when they go on to do their master's and so it's it's very, it, you know, it's becoming a global health crisis, actually. I think the World Health Organization said that mental health will be a global health crisis by 2030. And university students, you know, their population is massively impacted by poor mental health. And it could be the pressures of achieving and performing and etc. Um, so that kind of takes me to the day that you got a call from Geneva, I believe, and you went to visit her in halls. Are, are you able to talk about yeah, that if it feels comfortable? Of yeah, of course. So what, so what had happened was that on the 28th of September, she, um, she rang me and she said, Mummy, I'm really tired. And I could hear in her voice that she had been crying. So I said, all right then. And at this point, she's already um, she's already at Imperial already. 
So I said, all right then, babes, wait for me. I'm going to come down and get you. So I've driven down, I've picked her up, and I could see her face, her eyes are all red and puffy because she was quite fair as well, Geneva. So she um, had really puffy eyes. So I said to her, what's up? And she just said, because that's just how I talk. You know, I just, I just said to her, what's up? You know, why have you got yourself into a right two and eight? What's happening? And she just said, oh, I just, I'm just really tired. I've got so much work to do. You know, um, I just want to come home. And I was like, well, I've been, I have been actually saying to you, you know, come home, come home and just chill out a little bit. Oriana, that's her sister, and Rocco, her brother, they would love to see you. And she was like, okay, then, yeah. So she's come home and then I said to her, and then she's gone upstairs into her, up, up into her bedroom. And I said, and I yelled from downstairs, from the kitchen, that, okay, you know what, I'm going to cook your favourite your favorite meal, which was um, jollof rice. Oh. And so, so as I'm cooking, she comes running down the stairs and she's like, oh, mummy, I've got to go back. And I was like, I was like, what are you going back for? And she said, um, we've got this research group and I'm in charge of it and I can't let the team down. And she started reeling off a whole heap of responsibilities, the whys she had to go back. And I really didn't want her to go back, to be honest with you. And, you know, but she was adamant. And I'm just thinking, well, I can't force her. I can't put my foot down and say, listen, you're not leaving this house because she's 22. So I said to her, do you want me to drop you back at home, um, drop you back at your halls of residence? She said, no. She said, you've got to go and pick up the kids, which was true. I did have to, I did have to go and do the school run. So I put her in an Uber. She's gone back. So that was, I believe that was the Friday. And so the Saturday I had um, spoken to her, you know, just messaging back and forth. The Sunday I had spoken to her, but then she had all, she had also spoken to her aunt and her aunt. And after she had finished speaking with her aunt, her aunt rang me and said, have I spoken to Geneva? And I said, yeah, um, I spoke to her earlier on today. And she's like, well, I've just come off the phone with her and she don't sound right. And I was like, really? And so she said, yeah, she said, I think you better, you know, pop down there and see um, if she's okay. So I thought, all right then. So myself and my husband got in the car, we've driven down. We couldn't get into her room. That's the first thing that I remember. And I was like, she got behind the door. And so we had to call the security guards to help us gain access into her room. And when we and when we eventually got into her room, the room was just chaotic. She was slumped halfway on the bed, halfway on the floor. It was just, it was a disgusting sight. I won't go into too much graphic detail, but what she, well, what she had done was she had consumed a considerable amount of antifreeze alongside, a, yeah, a, alongside a cocktail of prescription medication, so paracetamol, and almost a almost a full bottle of vodka. I can't remember if it was vodka or gin I don't you know I don't think the I don't think that even makes a blind bit of difference but the fact is she drank a considerable amount of alcohol on top of the antifreeze and it weren't like a little bit of antifreeze it was like 
loads of antifreeze. And so she was in a semi-conscious state. I was panicking. Like I literally, like I, I, I froze. I couldn't even get my words out. And somehow, I, 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 I don't know if it was me or my husband or the security guard, between the three of us, between the three responsible, supposedly responsible adults in the room at that time, one of us made the phone call to call the ambulance. The ambulance came in naught to six seconds, picked her up, tried to make her conscious. And when they felt that she was conscious enough, they moved her put her in the back of the ambulance. My husband rode with her in the ambulance and I followed behind in the car. And it was a long, long night because she was rushed into intensive care. She was put on, uh, she wasn't put on life support. She was almost life support because she, because by the time they had got her into, um, the uh, intensive care unit, she, her, her vital organs weren't really functioning that well. And, that, and I remember when the consultant came into the family room to say to us that, you know, she ain't really in a great shape and we should prepare ourselves. They're doing everything they can, but it's, uh, it's not looking good. And I had, and at that point I had the presence of mind before we left her room to collect the art, the artifacts of what she had, what I could see she had taken. So I brought the almost empty bottle of antifreeze, the alcohol, the empty blisters of the paracetamol, and she also crushed and she also crushed soap washing powder pods, which was quite weird. So I, I, I had the present of mind to pack all of that and I'd given them to the the medical team and they just basically said to us that you know she's not looking great we should just prepare ourselves by which point I had already telephoned my entire family who were beside themselves they could not believe what was actually going on and so we stayed that night in mm. the hospital until they told us that there's no point us staying here any longer go home and come back they'll let us know if she comes too and so we've got home and every my my family they're calling and they're like you know what's going on you know what happened da, 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 da. and I was like I don't know like I'm telling you I don't know I really don't know and it was two weeks hmm. of her being in hospital in intensive care on a um, dialysis machine with various family members visiting her when she was able to come to and actually be in a state where she could talk. So uh, my family, and we're, you know, we're a huge family, so, and not only are we huge, we're also loud. We don't know how to whisper. <laughs> we don't know how to whisper. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the Nigerian thing to do. So you've got all of these various family members coming, some shouted, Eh, 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 Geneva, what's going on? Da, 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 da. You know, and I could see that she felt embarrassed, she felt fed up. And even, you know, when I look back, when I look back in my reaction, how I was, like I was like, I was upset because I was like, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you doing this? Why, why would you want to leave me? What's happened? And she could not give me a, a she couldn't express herself or or give me an answer that I could 
see it from her point of view. I was just upset with her that she had done this to herself, not necessarily to me, but to herself. And it didn't make any sense. And so I wasn't, I wasn't like perhaps other parents or other mums would have been like where they would have either been on the bed, holding, holding their loved one's hand, praying, oh, I love you, da, da, da. That wasn't my reaction. I was just very matter of fact, and I was viewing it from a logical standpoint and not really understanding her emotions at that time. And it mm. was difficult for me because she wasn't giving me anything to work with. And I remember saying to her that, you know, give me a crumb, like give me something so that I can understand you know, mm. so it was just very awkward. Mm. And so when she was well enough to leave hospital, she came home and I said, stay home, you know, stay with us so that we can um, look after you and just try and work through. And I was like, and I was like, Geneva, are you trying to kill me? Again, this is this is my selfishness as a as a parent. Like, it's all about me now. You trying to kill me. Don't you know that mm. if anything happens to you, I'm going to die? You know, because that then that was just how I was thinking. Like, you're my first, you're my first child, my firstborn child. We have just paid a huge sum of money to celebrate your graduation ceremony. Because at that time we her graduation ceremony was in October mm. and I and we were the family we were all getting ready to make this massive convoy to Bournemouth to sit down and you know be proud parents and I was just and I had envisioned this from the day she was born how I would look how I would feel standing next to my firstborn child a graduate and so I'm thinking you know what's going on why I didn't want you to do these masters to do the masters in the first place now you've done it what you can't cope and so I was saying all of these things to her and she was like no mommy I'm really sorry I was just stressed I won't do it again I'm fine I'm fine I'm, and it's that word I'm fine that is the it's the one word that's yeah. that statement that just stays yeah. in my head sometimes I'm yeah. fine I'm fine mm. the lies okay I mean I say the lies because that's what mental health does. It yeah. is the chameleon of emotions. Mm. And the person that suffers from it is the magician. They are so great at deceiving, hoodwinking the, their loved ones and the doctors and the nurses into believing that, yes, I am fine. And you, the recipient, hearing those words gives you a false sense of security in believing that, yes, that person is fine. Well, in actual fact, they're, they're very far from fine, you know? And, mm. so, and so she's gone home on the 11th of October. And then I didn't want to now change my relationship or with her in terms of how we communicated prior to her going into hospital. So I didn't want to suddenly start bombarding her with phone calls and text messages because that's just not, that's not how we communicate. If, yeah. I sent, if I sent her a text message and she didn't reply back, I'm not going to be bothered because I know she's fine and she will reply back later on. And plus I can see what she's getting up to because I follow her around social media. So, yeah. But now it's different. So if I text and I don't get a reply back, instantly I'm, I'm worried 
Has she tried to take her life again? What's going on? Da, 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 da. So from the 11th to the, um, the 16th of October, which was the day that we found her, but on the 15th of October, um, I had been speaking to her off and on, and I know that um, her dad and her cousins were all talking to her, and they all said, you know, we all came to the same conclusion. You know, she's all right. She's getting better and all the rest of it. And then on the 15th of October was the last time I actually spoke to her. And it wasn't a text message. I was on the phone with her for about two and a half hours. And I was just trying to reassure her. I was trying to, you know, I had my, 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 my head. I was just, because I had now, I had a few, um, I had time to reflect on things and I just came to the conclusion that okay if she's in a suffering state where she's just not happy there's no point me there's no point me being upset or angry that you know why is she acting like this because you know she ain't got nothing to worry about in the first place let me try and see it from her point of view so we talked and I was trying to encourage her and you know we had a really great conversation like she even she cried she was like mommy I'm so sorry and you know I hate seeing you upset and I said and I said to her I said babes this is not about me this is about you okay forget about me I just need to know that you're okay and that you are going to use and access and keep your appointments with the local mental mental health team okay I'm not happy that they've given you sleeping tablets. I'm not happy that they're they're trying to put you on antidepressants because oh gosh, okay. yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't yeah, I wasn't happy with any of that because my whole viewpoint was why are we going down the medication route Absolutely. first? Mm. Why are we not addressing her emotions? Let's get, yes, let's sir. ask her empowering questions to mm. force her to talk about how she's feeling. Let's mm. not suppress those feelings because if she grew up, if her childhood was such that, yes, she's always had mental health issues and she's always been medicated because we done tried everything else and nothing else has worked, then fine. But we haven't tried anything. Why, why is this the first and only option first? So I, I wasn't happy with that, but she said, mummy, it's only... It's low dosage. It's only for seven days and all the rest of it. And I said, that doesn't even make any sense anyway. It takes at least 12 weeks for anything to get into your system to yeah, start working. Yeah. yeah. So what's seven days going to do? That doesn't make no sense. And so, you know, as I was, as I was trying to give, trying to explain the, you know, that my feelings, but at the same time, I didn't want to be too forceful because I didn't want to get upset. She was happy. And I said to her, I said, look, babes, do you know, look, I said, look, the doctors and nurses, right, and anyone else you're going to come into contact with, yes, they're doing their job, they care about you, but they don't have the same invested emotional interest the way I do because Absolutely. you are my, my child. That's it, yeah. You know? It's a you different thing are, entirely. It's completely different. I said, Geneva, you are my child. You are my firstborn child everyone looks up to you okay not in a pressurized way but they admire you for who you are and I just need you to know that you are loved 
beyond anything. If you've never felt love before, I'm telling you right now, I love you more than I love myself. And if anything happens to you, I am going to die. I'm, and I'm mm. not saying that to blackmail you. You just need to know how much you mean to me. And what was her response to that? Did she seem responsive or? Yeah, she just, you know, she, she said, oh, no, mummy, I'm really sorry. I love you too. I won't do it again. And I said to her, it's not, I'm not telling you off. I'm not asking you not to do it again. I'm asking you to address and work through whatever it is. And if I can't help you, then we will pay. Okay, we're not poor. We will pay. But I, I, I need you. If you don't feel comfortable speaking to any family members, then speak to someone that doesn't know you. I want you to engage in the talking therapy. I'm not happy about the the sleeping tablets and the antidepressants and all of that nonsense. Okay, but I, I need you. I need to know that you're going to keep to the appointments that have been given to you. And you're going to get through whatever it is. Because, I, you know, I, I firmly believe that this was just a moment. This was just a moment in her life. It wasn't going to be long. It wasn't going to be permanent. And I just believe that once we got over this, because I said to her, I said, I said, if you take a deep breath, okay, I promise you, you'll get through this. But you've got to give yourself time. You know, you've got to want to engage. You've got to want to try and you know, fix yourself, as it were. I really believe that. And I believe that if she had done that, I would have been, you know, we would have got through this. And as a family, we would have been taking the piss out of her. Like, oh, my gosh, do you remember that time when you felt it was a good idea to go and drink, anti, you know, antifreeze and all of that? Because that's just how we are. But mm -hmm. I never, ever, ever expected the following day, which, so I spoke to her on the Monday, then on the Tuesday... I sent her a message. She rang her dad and he was in training and he couldn't pick up the phone call. And then he replied, then he, he excused himself from the classroom and he rang her back. She didn't pick up. He's come home around four or five o'clock. My other daughter said, oh, mommy, have you spoken to Geneva today? And I was like, actually, no, I haven't. I sent her a message. I didn't get any tick on whatsapp and so i thought you know what let's just drive down maybe she's sleeping from the sleeping tablets or maybe she's charging her phone and she switched her phone off and it was while we were driving down i don't know what it was but i knew instantly without a shadow of a doubt that she was already dead oh, i did gosh. yeah i didn't express that feeling to my husband i just kept it to myself but I knew that she had already taken her own life. And so when we arrived at Imperial College again for the second time, I decided that actually I'm not going to go upstairs this time. I'm going to stay downstairs in the foyer. And my husband went up with the security, with the security guard. And it seemed like they were upstairs for the longest time. And I was ringing my husband's phone and he weren't picking up. And I was like, why is he not picking up his phone? And I think it was on the fourth time that I rang that I saw through my peripheral vision, the police running in, the oh, ambulance gosh. running in and more security personnel running through my 
past me and I knew instantly they were going upstairs to Geneva's bedroom, to her room as it were. And I knew, yeah, it just, and that was it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I just want to, I want to take a moment for you. <sighs> I, yeah. I don't have any words really. I don't think that I ever have any words. Um, what, it's an incredibly difficult thing to go through mm. and it seems that your mother's instinct came into play there. Mm. I'm telling you, right, I have never, I mean, there has, there's been times when I'm doing something, there's just something within me that I know that, okay, this is going to work or naturally we don't need to be going here or any, or stuff like that. I just feel it. But in that moment, even though I knew that she was, that she was, she had already gone and seeing the police and the ambulance rushing past me, it was only when my husband came down and he looked white as a sheet. I mean, he's white already. So, I mean, can you get any whiter? <laughs> like he looked like, yeah. Cas he looked like Casper, the ghost, like proper white, just hollow, he just had this haunting expression on his face. And he it was as though the soul of him had also vacated. So all I'm looking at is just a physical person. Not I'm not really seeing my husband. And it was when he came down and I said to him, what's going on? Where is she? Where is she? And he said, she's gone. And then I repeated, what do you mean she's gone? And he said, our baby's gone. She's dead. That's when I just, that's when I collapsed to the floor. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And then my, uh, my nephews came down. My, my older sister came down. And my, my little sister came down. And yeah, that was it. Just, that's you know, chaotic. just like that. Yeah, just like that. So this now kind of brings us to, you know, let's just take a moment of reflection. Um, it brings us to now what you sort of remember the next day, I suppose, what you, how you've kind of felt the next day. It might sound like a silly question. Yeah, what your environment was like, the people around you as well and how you felt. It was just a... Um, um, I'm trying to find the right word. It was just an environment. My house was just filled to the rafters with my family. And I really, really appreciated mm. them being there. But I was going to swear there. But, That's all right. You can okay. Sit, sit, so you can swear. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but fuck, the sorrow and the pain was palpable in my house. It was actually it started so when when the police gave us permission to go home that night there were already family members waiting in the house for us so I had no sleep and it just continued like that the sorrow it was a mixture of sorrow disbelief anger and yeah, that was, those were the three emotions, sorrow, disbelief, anger. 
that was just it. Just crying and, you know, no, but no, there, I don't think there is a people that cry more than, you know, Nigerians, because that's what, that's what we excel at. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 feel, I feel in the culture and our cultures and our communities, um, you know, when we're speaking, we're, it, I think people think we're shouting at each other, but we're no. actually speaking to each other yeah well that's how yeah exactly that's we're very animated <laughs> yeah when we're, when we're talking and you know and if you're not from if you're not brought up in that culture or or if you're not around an ethnic group that is like that you do feel like oh my gosh are these people fighting what's who who what's what's going on yeah. <laughs> you know if you're on the phone and you happen to be a bystander you know because i this is i've done this loads of times i'm like if you're arguing loudly on the phone, please put your phone on loudspeaker because I need to hear the other person's point of view. But in actual fact, they're not arguing. It's just how we express ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, I think my, at that point, my neighbours must have just thought, what's going on here? You know, is Sue and Marco, are they having a party or something? You know, because you could not get into our driveway. Their entire cul-de-sac was just jammed packed with cars. Wow. Yeah, and they were all family at the beginning. It was just family. And that's the thing, um, when our our loved one dies, um, I I think there's a beauty in that when Mm. our family and our community turn up, they show up. Yeah, 100%. And that's the beauty of that. I think it's a very supportive environment to be in. It it does come with its challenges also, but... 100%, yeah. Um... Yeah. Gosh, Sue, I really have so much love for you. Just Thank you. How you, you know, articulated your experiences and what happened. Thank and you. and I think all our listeners well, um, we're really with you in this moment. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I mean, as I said, um, you know, my family were here and then the Italians, they turn <laughs> up. Yeah, that's, that's another culture altogether. <laughs> that's another culture altogether. Yeah. You know, I mean... I can, I think for me, if you were to ask me, what did I find most difficult? Mm. And I have to honestly say was picking out the flowers for her casket. Mm. Because I just thought that was all kinds of wrong in the sense that we had often spoken about what her wedding would look like and everything and you know, the kind of flowers that she would like in her bouquet. And now I'm sat in the florist looking at a catalogue of flowers that I need to choose. I just thought, this is just, something's not right here. This is not right. That for me was, that, that first part was really difficult. I did not get involved in any aspects of the funeral arrangements. That was oh, okay. completely take. Yeah, I wasn't going to do that. And my family didn't, my family weren't going to put me through that. But what they did make me do, and they said that, you know, we've done everything else, Sue, but you've got to do this. You know, we can't do this for you. And that was pick the flowers and do the order of service and pick the songs. And that's another thing I forgot to mention. Geneva was a huge, huge Lady Gaga fan. Like, it was ridiculous. And um, (laughs) no, it really was because she dragged me to two concerts. She dragged her dad, 
her her aunt, you know, we all got roped into this into the world of little monsters or whatever Lady Gaga's phrase was at that at that point in time. So she was a huge, huge Lady Gaga fan. I did not go and see her. So she um what do they call it? Is it an open casket or in the chapel of rest or whatever. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, didn't want, no, I wasn't going to do that. I thought, what is the point? Because I don't want my last memory of her lying down. Because if I see her lying down, I'm just going to think, well, why aren't she getting up? Weren't going to do that. But her sister needed that, I wouldn't say closure, but that helped her move forward in her grief. So she visited her a couple of times other family members visited her, but I won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole. I've just got to be completely honest with you. Can I ask why, you know, looking back now, um, do you know what your reasoning for that was? Was it too painful at the time? Do you have any regrets about that? How do you process the fact that you, you didn't go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, no, I, because I just felt that's not, that's not what's going to help me get through this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as I think as a person, when you're going through grief, you have to know what it, what it is you can stand and what mm. it is you can't stand mentally. Mm. And I know myself. I know I know what I can. I know what I can get through, mm. even though it's painful. So I spoke about picking the flowers. That was just that was that was horrible. I you know I cried tears and snot picking out the flowers you know part of you know I'm crying because I'm picking flowers and I'm also crying at how expensive flowers are and you know <laughs> and so my yeah. humor was coming through my grief I was like I'd be like I can't believe like why the fuck are why is it like one flipping letter cost a hundred pounds that's fucking <laughs> day like robbery yeah. out of order you know so I'm saying all of this as I'm crying and I'm in pain but that's but that's just my character that's my personality mm-hmm. I get that. and you know and so I knew that first of all I rationalized me going I said to myself I asked myself these questions I said to myself if you go what are you gaining the answer to that was nothing if you go will it make you feel better will you have closure do you think you're going to regret it Answer to that question, absolutely not. If you go, if you're able to go and you see her, how is that now going to affect you being able to move forward and learn to coexist with your grief? It's not going to help at all. Mm. So I just, I, that was, I asked myself those three questions and because the answer was always no and I, and I didn't hesitate in giving myself those answers because I was having open dialogues with myself you know mm. I think my, I think my family thought I was you know I was going batshit crazy and maybe I was because in the beginning when you know the early days I would if I'm not in if I'm not in my bed surrounded by every single family member that could fit into my bedroom you know I would I would lock myself in our ensuite and just sit on the floor and I would cry and I'd say this is ridiculous I cannot wake up tomorrow morning and go and do this I can't do it so I seriously seriously contemplated taking my own life and I was even saying to myself you know what Geneva didn't even do it properly 
I bet she, you know, it, it, well, how long did it take her to get to, you know, get to the golden gates up in heaven? I would do it in like naught to six seconds, you know, and I really planned how I was going to do it. But then my sensible side would say, why are you being stupid? Can you not hear what suicide has done to your family? L turn the music down, Sue, and listen. Listen to the sorrow. Listen to the pain. Do you really want to put your family through that again? And that, you know, and so I would, I would have these role play in, the, in my ensuite and everything. And I just said to myself that seeing her is mm. not helping me. I am not going to get anything. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to think, oh, oh, she's at peace now, bless her. No, I'm not thinking that because whilst she might be at peace, I know I'm not at peace. And secondly, that's not her. I, I came to the conclusion very, very early on that, that I'm not looking at my baby. Mm. My child went the first time we found her semi-conscious in her halls of residence. Mm. She, had, she had already gone. Mm, she That's had a, not... it's an invisible illness you know it's yeah. very hard to detect what's going on when something is invisible and yeah. uh, that kind of takes us back to just I'm fine yes yes yeah. yeah so I don't I and you know and this is the thing people do not know how expensive funerals are now, oh yeah they're ridiculous yeah. they are ridiculous and had we not been had we not been financially okay had we not come from the family that i come from that everybody chipped in and they didn't chip in because they felt we couldn't afford it that's just what family that's what our family this is what we do mm. someone's in need we're going you know we're helping out you know so my mind i was like I was I was so upset and angry that I've got to spend all of this money on a funeral when I should be spending it either at her graduation, at um, at her wedding, and here I am. Just it's the flowers that's really bugging me. You know, you can tell because I keep going back to the flowers. Yeah, it's a significant <laughs> point, isn't it? That was a really significant point for you. Yeah, yeah. The flowers like. really, you know, the flowers. Oh, gosh, the flowers. Because we, we got flowers that spelt her name. Mm -hmm. We got flowers that spelt daughter. And we got flowers that spelt sister. Mm -hmm. Right? And then we had a massive, big, big bouquet that just stretched the entire top part of her casket. And then, and then my close friends, they also got flowers, and lots of people bought flowers. And I think one of I think one of the most prettiest of all of the the floral tributes was a massive butterfly that my girlfriends got, and I don't even want to know how much that cost them because it was just huge and it was beautiful. And when I saw that, I was like, I was tearing up, and then having having to actually get down the stairs to leave the house to get into the car to mm. follow oh that was just that again that was just awful oh so, my gosh so talk us through then you know if you know do it in a way that feels comfortable um 
What did Geneva's funeral look like? I know it was hard for you to get dressed and go there and... Yeah. When you know something's, something's coming on the horizon and you push it back and you, you know, you're in denial that, yeah, it's not going to happen. On the actual morning itself, I really was in denial. Like, I'm not even joking. Like, I could not believe. I had my, my suit laid out and my husband, I could see him getting changed and his hands were shaking and I had my sisters and my cousins in the house at the time. And I struggled to get changed. I struggled to put my makeup on because I just thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to attend her funeral looking busted and ugly. That's just not me. I'm not, I'm not letting myself down like that. I'm going to represent how I would represent myself on a normal day. And when after I had got dressed, put a little bit of makeup on. And as I was walking down the stairs, I, my feet and my legs just started to shake. And I just said, um, I just said to my sister, and my cousin was like, I can't do this. Like, I cannot do this. And they were crying. They were like, Sue, you've got to, you've got to. Go. And, I go, and I said, no, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going. I was like, you lot go. I'll be fine. And they, and they were like, no, you've got to go. And each of them held my hand and just pulled me literally by my bottom down the stairs until I got to the bottom of the stairs and my husband's family were there and they were crying and I could see the, I don't know if they're the funeral directors, but the people that wear black that drive your, that drive the funeral, the oh, hearse. The, the usher. That's the word. The undertaker. The, the undertakers, that's yeah. it. Yeah. I could see them. They had come out and they were just at the threshold of our front door because our front door was open. And they just like, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And I was just like, which part of this is going to be okay? No, seriously. Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, you know, <laughs> suddenly my tears just rolled back. And I was like, I was like, what are you talking about? Which part of this is going to be okay? No, how, 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 how? Look, <laughs> you know, because then I can now see the coffin that my husband and my sister had selected, had picked, and she had the white coffin. And so, you know, when you're saying this is going to be okay, it's like, what are you talking about? There's nothing, this right here is not okay. What we're doing here is not okay. And I eventually got into the car and that's when I started to really like proper break down and cry. I had my other daughter in the car, my, um, my sister-in-law in our car, my husband, and we were all just proper crying ugly. It's just, it was just a mess. It's just disgusting. Just crying and I was just rocking back and forth saying Geneva why did you leave me oh, my Geneva. and then when we got to the crematorium and there was just like loads of people a lot of her university friends as I said I didn't really get involved in all of this mm. but a lot, a lot of her university friends and I respect them because they did not post only one did and that one person got a tongue lashing from a family member who told him promptly to take down her picture because he had posted it. But everybody else gave us as a family that proof, that privacy and that time to grieve. And also it allowed us to protect our other two children where they didn't have to, well, not especially not the younger one, but definitely 
my other daughter, Ori, who is, you know, of that age where they are socially active. So mm. I had, the, they gave us that proof, you know, that privacy um, of not making this big thing about, you know, Geneva dying. And so when we, when the cars pulled up at the crematorium, at that point, my eyes were so glazed over with tears and I made the fatal error of not using waterproof mascara. And so when you're crying and mascara gets into your eyeballs, that's just, that's another pain altogether. So <laughs> I had, you know, yeah. I had bloodshot eyes from crying, bloodshot eyes from not, you know, from not wearing waterproof mascara. And now I can hear snivels from everybody that, that is stood round waiting for me to get out. And then the pool bearers, which was my, um, my my cousins and my brothers they carried her casket in and the song the first song was the first song that was played was Sade Adul oh which gosh is, yeah, king, yeah. Of, king of Sorrow that's a beautiful song it's just because the words are so poignant because I am I am crying everybody's tears and I am the king of sorrow so that was the song that um, that was played. And then um, our pastor, our pastor Phil from Hillsongs, gave the most amazing service. I had her cousins come up, talk, her university mates, and then all eyes are on me. And I wasn't sure whether or not I, was, I would be able to give, is it a eulogy or a speech? Theology, but, yeah. Yeah, but I felt I had to because... I knew that if I didn't, I would, re I, that I knew if I didn't do it, I would regret it. Mm. And in my mind, I said, I said to myself, you speak to people every day. This is what you do. You're a coach. Okay. You get people to face their fears. No matter how uncomfortable it is, you get people, you're able to motivate them and inspire them to do the things that they don't want to do, but are of benefit. Now, if you don't do this, you are going to regret it. And I knew I would regret it. So I took a deep breath. I got up. I gave my eulogy. I kissed the coffin. I stood there for the longest time until I think it was my husband that actually, you know, ushered me back to ushered me back to the seat because I just stood there crying holding on to the coffin after I'd given my eulogy and he brought, he ushered me back to the seat. And then the service ended with one of her favourite Lady Gaga songs, which was A Million Reasons. Mm. And that was, that was beautiful. And then, yeah. And that, and so we came out, uh, she was cremated by the way. She oh, okay. Yeah, she wasn't buried, and okay. even before even before we went through this tra uh, this tragedy, I've never really understood burials and putting people in the ground, and then you've got mm. a gravestone. Because I, in my mind, that person is not there anymore, and I know you need a place to remember them, but I look at it as. The, the person lives on through you. You take mm. on the good bits of them and you go and live your best life. And I didn't want to feel burdened by having to visit a ground. 
mm. you know what happens if yeah. we what happens if we move out of the area and that's and that's the thing that saddens me about grave graveyards is that you see all of those wonky gravestones and all the rest of it they've been there since god was a boy and yeah. you know generations do you know what I mean? yeah. people have moved around i didn't i that's I don't need a physical spot to mm. remember Geneva. Why? Mm. Because as long as I've got breath inside of me, I am Geneva. She's living through me and I'm taking on mm. all of the great things about her. And mm. that's and I think that's why I'm I think that's what really helped me get through my grief and how where I am now, why I I am so matter of fact and I'm not broken like I've seen other families that have been bereaved by suicide and how broken they are because I just think of it logically in that she was ill and as a parent you would never look at your child knowing that they're ill and not want to help them so where's mm. the guilt where's the guilt coming from you wouldn't mm. do that mm. you're you're really self-aware with with what helps you and what doesn't in yeah. order to carry on and, and move forwards and I think that takes a great level of awareness and skill actually I would say in yeah. order to, to understand where you are with your emotions and what is going to constructively help you yeah um, you you live on when someone you love dies their memories live on with you not the you know it's just dead bones essentially yeah exactly it's, it's not yeah. them it's not who they are it's yeah she's not there so it doesn't what am I doing there you know it doesn't make any sense like for her birthday I know that if she were alive just like what we had given her for her 21st birthday just she wanted to go on holiday she wanted to go to Sardinia she loved Italy flew her out there put her in a you know top hotel I know that if she was here now she probably would want to do something similar or eat at her favorite Italian restaurant those things I can do anywhere I don't feel I don't have to I don't feel obligated or feel the obligation that oh my gosh it's Sunday or it's Christmas Mother's Day you know let's go and let's go and buy a bouquet of flowers and go and put it on a stone when she's not there she's mm. gone her yeah there's nothing there yeah hey yeah I hear you on that I can resonate with that experience it's quite an empty feet it would be an empty feeling really yeah I um I know for others it's helpful mm. uh, I don't want to disrespect other people's experiences but actually going to the cemetery sometimes there's just no connection for some grievers because it's yeah. like well what am I looking at here <laughs> um it's, it's a it's a difficult one so where did you scatter Geneva's ashes then so actually her ashes haven't been scattered and we wanted where where we will scatter them they will be scattered in our villa in Italy because that oh, was lovely. her yeah that's her happy place so lovely. we haven't actually because we had to wait ages for her inquest and um life just got on top of us so her ashes are still with the funeral directors who were just amazing you know independent funeral directors they mm. do the most amazing job so uh, so once we once we've gotten over this whole lockdown that's that's what that's our intention is to take her ashes to Italy and scatter them there because again for me I'm just like we're just scattering her 
her remains, as it were, or whatever it is, her, into the universe, okay? And our house in Italy will always be there. And even if it's not there any longer, she'll still be in the country that she loved the most, you know? And on top of that, her legacy... And- her legacy lives on even at Bournemouth University because they named an award after her. They wanted to honour her in such a way that it wasn't just your bog standard park bench or planted tree. They wanted something a lot more significant. So with the Chartered Institute of Marketing, they, they named an award after her and they presented the first recipients of that award last year. Mm. to the top student so again I have nothing but happy positive memories and I don't want this one part that two weeks from September to October where she was so ill to overshadow everything that she was and yeah. as I, and as I said in my eulogy Mm. I had 22 good years being her mum. And yes, I did not, was not, am not ready to say goodbye. But what I, but what I do have is only happy memories. Even, even, even the memories of us arguing and me being, you know, being the mum that I am, I still find those times happy. Yeah, of course, because that's natural in any yeah. relationship with anyone, yeah. uh, whether it's siblings, mother or daughter, you would, you know, it's not always a bed of roses and no. that's a very normal part of life. Yeah. And you would look on that and remember that also fondly. Yeah. Um, so that kind of brings me on to bereavement counselling. Um, what your experiences are of that just very briefly it's something that we discuss on the podcast because for me bereavement room podcast is about empowering the voices of the people that we don't often hear from Mm. in this in this space so that we can be open with our emotions and have open dialogue and kind of break stereotypes Mm. I um, I didn't like my first bereavement counseling because I just felt that this group counselling is not for me. This is not where I'm going to get through this um, this new journey. It's not for me. I don't, I mean, and I'm not being disrespectful to anyone that engages in group therapy. But for me and my husband, being in a room and seeing how much pain families are have gone through continue to go through five years deep in their grief of their loved ones particularly from suicide in some cases seven years and what you know were just at the start just I didn't want I just didn't it just didn't help and then we did um and then we did couple bereavement therapy that was good because it allowed both of us to be in a space where we could talk about how we're dealing with stuff because I I recognize that guys grieve differently from get from girls they do yeah. yeah you know so that so that was really insightful for me to hear how my husband 
has been coping and how he continues to cope. But for me, what really, really helped me that I, I found really beneficial was not to really go with a full-on bereavement therapist, but was just to go to another coach that had experience in, in grief counselling, but was able to twist it around so that I'm not going, so she's not trying to fit every, um, every teaching or every, or how you, you would, you know, um, do counselling for someone that had been bereaved and go through the, whatever, what is it, five, seven stages of. Yeah, um, I don't get that. I don't get that either because I ain't gone through, I'm, I, I'm not in denial, I'm not trying to bargain with anybody. If I'm angry, I'm just generally angry because of flowers that I had to pay for. But, you know, if, you know, <laughs> the flowers are just going to keep coming back because the more I think about it, the more upset it just makes me. And the acceptance, I had already accepted what had happened. So I don't get these stages of grief. Yeah. So the thing with that is that um, there's a lot of talk about counselling and psychotherapy and how it works. And um, actually, I think if people do counselling correctly, they wouldn't be sitting there talking about the theories with you. It's, yeah. it's meant to be a more therapeutic encounter and more authentic, not telling you about theories. They should just implement that without you even knowing to ask the question of where you are at. So I have heard that quite often on the podcast where they guests have been put off by being told about the seven stages or whatever stages of grief because even I know through my own grief I don't think I even went through all of those seven stages and it wasn't in a particular order and to me personally it didn't make sense and also to some of the other guests so I, yeah. I kind of hear your pain on that I don't yeah. I don't know if that person is counselling properly then in that case, if they are yeah. doing that. So, anyway. so I didn't, um, that did not help uh, in the slightest. And I was just upset because I just thought to myself, here I am, I've paid money for an hour of my life. That oh, it's I won't, private. Okay. Yeah, that I won't get back. And it's a, it's been of no use to me whatsoever. I could have gone into Zara and got more fulfilment. <laughs> you know, that's just how I, <laughs> that's just how I felt. I was just really upset you know so so yeah and um touching quickly the reason why we went private was because I like this is the thing that I'm I've become aware of that mental health services are incredibly fragmented mm. there is a huge shortage in funding and I get it right mm. I get it get it get it but that being said in order for us to have a society where we are able to help those that suffer from different stages of mental health, because here is the thing, every human being will go through some stage of mental health. Mm. The vast majority of us are able to Manage it, get, yeah. manage it, get through it, and it doesn't affect us. But for the percentage of those that are unable and it develops into something that is a lot more catastrophic and it's hindering their, their lives and how they're able to function on a day-to-day -day basis, that, should, that funding and that help should be readily accessible to all. Mm. Not to the few that can 
this, you know, pay and say, okay, you know what, I'm not waiting 24 months or 18 months or however the case may be to receive help. And it's really dependent on your postcode where, you know, where you live. If you live in an area that maybe is a little bit affluent or the services are not being as stretched, then you will gain access to those agencies and services a lot quicker than if you lived in a area where serve local services is really tight and budgets have been constrained over the years and so now overall you're on some waiting list no mm. you know so i i opted to go private mm. and that really was great for me because it forced me because i had already started to try and fix myself by myself anyway but being um going for that counselling and that coaching allowed me to really confront those emotions that maybe I had been feeling and I hadn't really dealt with it properly yet. And so, yeah, that really helped me. And I had, I think I had about eight or nine sessions over, I think it was probably four to five months or so. Mm. Yeah, because I because I enjoyed going there, just talking, and then you know I'm talking. She's and I know what she's doing because I do it myself. But I liked it. You know, I'm talking. She's writing notes and she's asking me questions, and I'm able to search through myself to come up with these questions and how I'm feeling, where I'm at now, and all the rest of it. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I didn't like the whole group one, and I didn't like the other one where she's mm. trying to tell me how I'm feeling when actually that's not, that's, you know, if you, if you, from the second I walk into your office or your room, you should get a gist of my sort of personality. So you're not going to try and, <laughs> you know, you, you can't fob me off and say, I'm feeling this, this is the stages you're here. No, I won't, never was. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's, it's doesn't help everyone. I've never really heard anything good about <laughs> the stages that we move um, so I want to talk about this wonderful grief coach that you did have could you kind of give me a bit of an idea of who she is because you chose her you connected with her and because you're a coach yourself you knew what you needed um, and what you liked are you able to kind of tell me how you going through what you went through before you tried a few different things that didn't work yeah, so oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she from your so, community or yeah, so um, I found her through the oh, this counseling, there's a national therapy counseling website, mm. and I was going through and I was curious as to whether or not I could find someone from my community, not because I didn't want to have anyone else outside, but I was just curious to see how they would counsel or coach someone that is going through something you know something within my community and I found her because of her surname because I knew instantly looking at her surname I knew she was a Nigerian so I was more if I'm being honest with you I'm, I was more curious to see whether is she going to bring if she knows that I'm a Nigerian right is she going to let her professional guard down and be really like yeah I'm with, you know, I'm with my, my, my people then. And now I can, is she going to employ that, the Nigerian mindset? Or is she just going to be 
it's you know I understand where you're coming from and I and I understand why you think the way you think or how your family were acting because I too am a Nigerian you know but no it it wasn't like that and I felt incredibly comfortable with her because what I was how the things that I would say I knew she understood because she comes from that same cultural background yeah that's it you know and I really and I like that and yeah I I enjoyed having a coach and a, a therapist that understood what it felt like to go through what I'm going through and try and navigate and not offend anybody within my family setup because of who we are and how things how things are done generally. And she mm. understood that because of because she comes from that same background. So yeah. it wasn't weird. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, and uh, I've often heard that from the previous guests as well, that actually in order to understand, I don't know, the South Asian experience or the Caribbean experience, or as you said, in the Nigerian community, um, you don't really want to spend £75 for 50 minutes explaining yes, how exactly things that. work in your life, yeah, right, yeah. and where you're from and your background and your traditions and rituals and stuff. But, yes. Um, so you, you, what you wanted and needed and required in that time is someone that is going to relate to you without you having to spend the entire session explaining. Yeah, exactly. And I've really, really valued that because not only, not only did I find it um, therapeutic, I also found it funny and humorous as well. So mm -hmm. I was able to be really sarcastic and she understood you know, the certain expressions and phrases and, oh gosh, can you imagine this one person, like who actually turns up late to a funeral? Like seriously, you know, and I, I could make jokes and it just, and it, it just, it wasn't a heavy, though it's serious, it, it didn't burden me as much. So now if I'm talking or if I'm working with a client, I can, you know, I can, I can hear what they're saying and I understand how different people deal with grief very differently. However, what I what I really liked was that she didn't pile sympathy on top of me because mm. it's not sympathy that I needed. And I understand that some people need that layer of sympathy, but how I was how I was rationalizing it was that this sympathy that you're giving and, you know, da, 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 and you're explaining, yeah, I, I should be feeling like this and it's, it's too soon for me to start feeling good. I get all of that. I understand it. However, in order for me to get myself out of this ocean of despair and sorrow, I'm going to need some tough love. I'm going to need someone to hold up the mirror in front of me and show me that if I continue to be in this state, in this ocean of despair and sorrow, my life is just going to float in front of me. And I'm going to, and I'm slowly, slowly going to start losing the good parts of me. And I'm going to morph into not a very pretty version of Queen Victoria wearing black all day. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I hear you. I, yeah. hear you. I hear you about love. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I needed. And that is the approach that I take with my clients. Like, I want you to be sad. Don't get me wrong. However, 
at a certain point in time, we are going to have to start getting you a little bit like I, all I'm asking is just one one step. I just want I need you to do one step. That's it. And I needed that. If not, I'm telling you right now, I would not I will not be on your show right now. I wouldn't. Because yeah. too much because too much time would have elapsed and my mind would have changed and I would have got used to being in that ocean. And it's very and it's very, very, very difficult to get yourself out of that place the longer you are there. It's almost it's almost like um that film, Get Me Out of Here, if you've uh, if you've seen it, when you just fall into that sunken place. It's the mind is incredibly powerful. And if the wrong emotions dominate your mind for long enough, it's just harder. It's not impossible, but it's just harder. And I knew that if I didn't have that firm, tough love from my therapist coach, I wouldn't be here today. And I certainly wouldn't be as positive learning to coexist with my my passenger coexist with her grief no i i i just wouldn't mm. no so the thing about tough love is uh, that's something that i know all too well um myself (laughs) my older sister is someone who's just like look I hear you gotta be sad right now but you know my relationship with my sister is very much of a tough love one she's like yeah be sad but I'm not gonna sit here and give you sympathy all day and bloody cook for you and do this and that for you (laughs) like you really need to get yourself out of this and you know she very much embodies that and actually my own therapist I think also embodies that as well but it's maybe quite a gentle way uh, she realizes I'm vulnerable in some uh, sometimes yeah uh, but I, I hear you on that because once you're in that really dark place your emotions it's hard to get out of that it is so hard and you know and just like what you said it we're not saying that we're not allowed not to feel a little bit sad. Of course, some days, I'm not gonna lie to you, some days I do feel sad. And when I feel sad, I feel I feel it growing inside of me. And then I have to say to myself, nope, you're, it's okay. It's okay, it's not a big deal, it's okay. Go lie down a little bit, you know, mm. play, some, play some music, mm. have a glass of wine, do whatever makes you feel happy in that moment just to get you, get your, your endorphins running, if that's what you need, you know, mm. it's okay, feel, feel sad, but don't, but what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to stay sad, don't be in that place for too long, mm. so oftentimes, we're allowed to drift between our sorrow and where we are now, it's okay, that's fine, but what's not okay is to stay in one spot for too long, and that, and that spot is the sorrow spot, don't stay there too long. Go there, but then, you know, understand, okay, I've gone there, I've said hello, now I'm leaving you. Bye. And then, you know, slowly go back to your happy place. Mm, that's some great guidance for our listeners. I think to everyone that's listening, they'll definitely draw some strength from that. Yeah. Yeah. And which now brings me to bad emotions in our community. Do you think that we are bad at talking about our emotion our emotions openly enough and if so how do we change the narrative 
hundred percent. We are useless. Like we, as a people, we, that's what we don't do. We do not show our emotions. We do not show any kind of weakness. We put on a, we put on a, a, a strong outer exterior. And if you're suffering inside, suffer in silence, cry within, don't show anybody that you're crying. And it is something that I think is generational from when our parents came over from the hardships of them trying to build a life, integrate into our society, into the society that we're in now, those, those characteristics and characteristics and experiences filtered down to our generation where it is just a lot harder. We don't, I mean, I suppose for my cousins and my brothers and, and sisters and the, the younger ones in my age, our parenting skills have evolved a lot because of, and particularly for, for what's happened to me, Geneva is like the poster child of, okay, if we never took or paid attention to what our teens were up to or what they were doing, we're going to change all of that. And I think what happens is within our within our community, we are so focused on working. We we seem to think that if we're working so hard and we're putting food on the table, we don't need to give that emotional support to mm. our kids. And I was like that. And I had said that in the beginning, how I was when I was a single mum. I weren't the mum that was going to give you cuddles and tell you that I love you. You should know that I love you. Why? Because you're here. You got mm. food. You got food on the plate. That's fine. And so, in order for us to really break down that stigma, we it has it has to be okay for our kids to say that my mum said I loved you or dad said I loved you. You know. And so, if our kids are saying that openly and they now feel comfortable with it and they're able to talk openly about how they feel. Because the thing is, you're not, we can't change our parents' generation. They are where they are. That's it, that's it. Yeah, nothing, nothing's gonna happen to mm. them. But what can happen is to us, the millennials, the 30, 30 somethings, 40s, yeah? 20s, the teenagers. If, if they feel, if they see their parents or those in their world, and you know, and I, I very seldom like giving role. I, I hate call, using celebrities as examples because I just feel they ain't really that they're, they're just human beings, and you know, I've got a platform. But if supposing there was like a a uh, a black or Asian or whatever uh, a celebrity of color mm. that really spoke openly and I know some of them are now especially footballers but that needs to be shown more as opposed to always having our our white counterparts crying and being more vulnerable we need to show our vulnerability more and I feel the way that can be done a that could be done by celebrities but b it can also be done by us we should we should initiate this ourselves if you show vulnerability into those that are directly in your world it then starts to filter out to them and they get used to doing it and then suddenly it's not a big deal anymore is it that's it 
That is exactly it. You hit the nail on the head. We can make these ch- small changes within our own environment. Uh, yep. With who we're around. And it is generational, and that's fine. They are where they are. Yeah. And, yeah, we have to do that within our own environment. And I, and, and I get really tired. That was one of the reasons why I created BR, because I got tired of seeing our white counterparts be the ones healing and talking yes. about their vulnerabilities i got really fucking tired yeah. of that yeah and i and i was just like where are the voices of the diaspora like yes. why are we not speaking and and yes. um, well that's why we're here really today yeah exactly it's <laughs> yeah. not you know i've realized you know that it's not a big deal like seriously we all cry we all cry yeah. what is the human. big deal you know, we're all human. Seriously, your boyfriend broke up with you. Okay, cry. Let's go and order. Let's go out for a cheeky Nando's, or let's, you know, yeah. would you want me to cook for you? Shall I cook you some pepper soup? You want a bit of jollof rice? Let's let's hash it out. But we don't. It's just not. It's not something that we're used to. But how I've changed and how I've set an example to my family and my friends, I have witnessed the change mm. to those in my world. Mm. How I've helped others that are not connected to my family, not connected to my, my, my friendship group, but have just found me because I've, I've openly discussed what I've been doing, look, you know, sharing my story. I have directly helped others. And so I'm making it okay. Yeah, that's it, you know normalizing it. Yeah, that's it. And it should be normal, but what shouldn't be normal is suicide. But what should be normal is how we learn to manage our emotions, how we can access those services. And if we can't access those services, what can we do now in the present to make myself, to help me manage my emotions, to help me shift my mindset from one of negative where I am being self-judgmental, I'm doing a lot of self negative self-talk. What can I do to stop me from doing that? How can I love myself first before I can be an effective person to those in my world? It's mm, beautiful. Thank you. I think that's our message to all of the communities within the mm. diaspora listening today, which now kind of we're getting to the end now of the podcast. And I was wondering, would you like to share some memories, your favorite memories of Geneva with us? My favorite memory of Geneva, gosh, there's so many of them. But uh, <laughs> I think my I think my my favorite one was the one was that she sent a um a little boomerang picture, a, a boomerang video of her cracking open a bottle of Prosecco when she uh, graduated, when she got the, when she got her results. And all I was thinking was that like, I've raised my baby well. Look at her cracking open that bottle of Prosecco. Go on, darling. Crack it. Let's, let's drink from the bottle. That was, uh, that was lovely. Memories of, of me taking her to Disneyland Paris when she was five with her cousin and we left, I left the luggage on the train. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was... <laughs> That was funny. Uh, there's just like loads. Oh, um, I tell you what I do miss, okay? Uh, Game of Thrones, because she obviously passed away, so she didn't get to see the end of Game of Thrones. So stuff like that, because I know that if she was alive, I'd be like, I'd be on the phone with her, like, Geneva, so what do you think then? You know, so it's, having, it's missing that sort of like banter. But yeah, there's a, 
I've only really got happy, fond memories of her because she just made me laugh. And we were just like, we if we went out and we saw something that would make us laugh, okay, we wouldn't, we, we didn't even have to talk. We would just sort of like go, mm-hmm. and we knew instantly what that meant. And we would just laugh about it. It's just, yeah, she's just, she was just so funny. She was just, she was a lovely, she was a lovely girl. And I'm, I'm happy and sad that A, she wasn't, her illness was such that it was unbearable for her to continue life. But I'm happy that even though I didn't get to attend her graduation ceremony, I am still the proud mum of a child that achieved the first class degree that gained admission into one of the top universities in the country, if not in the world, and also has an award named after her. So actually, I'm out here winning. Sue, absolutely, you (laughs) are out here winning. I've really enjoyed hearing about Geneva and all of her achievements. It's been really wonderful to spend this time with you today. Thank you. And that kind of brings us to, before we end, uh, how can people reach you on social media? Okay, so follow me at SG Consultancy. So that's consultancy, S for sugar, G for golf, and then the word consultancy, all one word. So that's on, um, that's on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, SG Consultancy um on instagram and when you follow me you'll know it's me because my bio says exactly what i do on the tin and there's a lovely picture of me in my profile picture (laughs) (laughs) i do like your pictures i'm not gonna lie very very glamorous i have to say thank you And, and now for gratefulness challenge do you know what the gratefulness challenge is I do because I've listened to your show. For our new listeners, uh, if you don't know already, the Gratefulness Challenge is where we take a moment to reflect on what we're grateful for in the here and now. And it could be big or small, whatever it is. Please don't make it about me. I know some of the former guests have, and I appreciate that we're all here. I'm happy to have you here. I feel privileged to be here to hear your stories. But uh, this is about you. So, Sue, would you like to go first or shall I? Um, I will go first. So I am incredibly grateful for life because life is a beautiful, beautiful privilege. And even when horrific, horrible things happen to us, we should still feel grateful for life because there are so many people that do not have the privilege of being able to still have another chance at pursuing whatever it is they want to pursue in life. So for me, I am just grateful for life. I'm grateful for my life. I'm grateful for my family and those that I do life with. So yeah, just really short and simple. I'm just really grateful for life and my life and those in my world. It's, it's an absolute blessing and honour. It really is. Thank you, Sue. That's very beautiful. I guess mine follows quite similarly to yours then. Um, I do feel very grateful to be here, to sit in this seat and to kind of be present with you and all of my guests. I think being present is very important. Yes. Uh, the biggest gift we can give is to listen. I feel that 
listening is underrated. It is. It's so hard to do. Not a lot of people know how to do it. Though. That's no. the thing. That's why it's underrated because so yeah. many people don't know how to do it. And I think the hilarious thing about it is that I think we often think that we're really good listeners. And even I know, even when I do this show, that I'm still not the perfect listener. Um, but it's something that I strive to improve on every day. So I'm I'm grateful to be here listening, to be present with you all, but also for the few family and friends that I can count on one hand that I'm very close to, that I can always draw on for support. And that's what I'm grateful for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to leave you with a final thought that I've taken from the episode, quoting Sue about mental health and mental illness being invisible. I'm fine, the chameleon of all emotions. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Thank you for being present and listening. Let's send Sue love. You can reach her on SG Consultancy over at Instagram. As always, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kulsuma Ali. If you were impacted by Sue's story today, you can call the Papyrus Hope Link. 0800 068 4141